Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to a special episode of Cryptique. I'm not joined by Ryan tonight because we have a very special guest, but first, I need you to like, subscribe, tonight. share, write a positive review, anything you can do to help us. You'll find all our socials in the show notes. You can email us at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. Our store is crypticpodcaststore.com, and you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash crypticpi. Tonight, we're proud to present the Reverend Jim Willis to talk about cults. Jim Willis, a fountain of knowledge with degrees from the Eastman School of Music and Andover Newton Theological School, boasts a rich background as an ordained minister for over 40 years and an adjunct college professor. His expansive knowledge spans theology, comparative religion, cross-cultural studies, and contemporary spirituality. Author of 20 books, Jim specializes in unveiling lost civilizations, suppressed history, and the intricacies of earth energy, dowsing, and out-of-body experiences. With a unique blend of theological insight and a passion for arcane cultures, Jim Willis is a versatile scholar dedicated to exploring the hidden facets of human existence and spirituality. Well, the book that uh, we're kind of talking about tonight is going to be American cults, That's uh, right. cabals, corruption, and charismatic leaders, but we can go wherever you want. If there's another topic that, you know, kind of piques your interest when we're talking, then feel free to veer. Okay. <laughs> uh, so anyway, w- let's start off. Tell them where, where you want our listeners to go to buy it. Well, uh, probably the easiest thing to do is to... Uh, um, go right to my website. Uh, it's uh, www.jimwillis.net. And uh, all the books that I've written, I think there's some 20, 22 of them, something like that now on there. And all you have to do is uh, it, it gives you reviews and a little information about the book. And I have to just click on the cover and it'll take you either to Amazon or mm-hmm. to the publisher. Okay. Um, and uh, there, it's available both places. I think it's also at Barnes and Noble and uh, Walmart if you want to go online there too. Sure. All right. Well, let's jump into it. What okay. got you started in researching cults? Because I, I actually have, um, uh, I have ancient gods, lost histories, hidden truths, and the conspiracy oh, of yeah. silence. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of a a little different than cults. What, why did you decide to write a book on cults? Oh, I'd love to give you a, a, a really existential reason, like something <laughs> happened or something like that. But the truth is, when you're an author and a publisher calls you up and says, would you like to write a book about cults? And here's how much we'll pay you. That goes a long way sure. <laughs> toward, toward getting you started. And in this case, it was something that uh, Visible Inc. wanted to do. And we tossed the idea around for a while. And the idea was just to just do cults in general, because mm-hmm. cults are certainly not an American phenomenon. They're all over sure. the world. Except that we just got into the topic that was so big. It was mm-hmm. so huge. We had to limit it somehow. So uh, Visible Ink was uh, Visible Ink Press was the uh, publisher, and since um, the bulk of their 
um, readership is in uh, in the Americas, we decided, well, we'll stick to American cults. Mm -hmm. Since then, however, I discovered I've I've been getting uh, comments from. Um, people in a lot of European countries, uh, believe it or not, I seem to have some kind of a, a following in Russia and in China about this. Uh, so obviously, it, it, it's a worldwide phenomenon. And those are big markets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the book, it, it's it's hard to know exactly what's going to go on here because when people um, look into cults, it's either because... Uh, they have an idea of, for instance, of cults are, are bad. That's the, mm -hmm. the default thing. If you're a cult is a bad thing and sure. it's not always that way. But on the other hand, uh, the people who are interested in this thing have a tendency to want to know if they're getting involved with uh, a cult or a cult leader. They're beginning to suspect something is just wrong about this particular group. Uh, mm -hmm. that they're involved in or this movement that they're a part of. Or a lot of times uh, people have a bone to pick. Uh, mm -hmm. It's amazing to me how many negative comments um, I've had about people uh, wondering why I don't label a particular uh, a particular church or a particular brand of Christianity or um, mm -hmm. a particular religious belief. Why don't I don't, why don't I don't, I blame that, you know, I mean, uh, name it as a cult. Sure. Uh, because uh, a lot of people have had sometimes bad reactions. Uh, I've been getting a lot of, of calls and, and comments lately from people, for instance, in the evangelical church. Mm -hmm. uh, I was minister as in the Christian church and for many years, part of the evangelical church. Mm -hmm. And uh, some people have been really burned by it. Uh, their churches have become too, uh, in their mind, cult-like. And uh, they want to know why I just don't, you know, label them as such. And I hate to I hate to label any organization or group a cult. Obviously, for the book, I had to do it to a certain extent. Of course. Uh, otherwise, you wouldn't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but I hate I hate to label a particular group or uh, as a cult because what I like to do instead is talk about cult-like behaviors mm -hmm. and cult methodologies. Sure. And that gets that gets tough. Uh, let me give you an example, for okay. instance. Uh, sure. And and it 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 it's an example that really hit me and hit me strong when I was writing this book. Um, I was uh, been a pastor of a church for forty years, and uh, as pastor of a church, you know, any church uses certain techniques to uh, invite people to come and sure. uh, and this kind of thing. And so when I would talk about um, marketing techniques, for instance, uh, some of these economic cults that are out there, um, when I talked about them, I would mention the fact of, of how they operated. They would pinpoint, usually through the internet or through friends, they would pinpoint people who were feeling discouraged in their job, people who didn't, who couldn't pay the bills, people who were feeling um, almost 
worthless because they felt there must be something wrong with me because I mm -hmm. look on Facebook or Twitter or something like that. And I'm hearing all these wonderful success stories. Sure. Me, I, I, I can't even afford groceries, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden they're approached by somebody and they're saying, here's an idea. Uh, why don't you come to this meeting? I, I'm, I'm with this group that's going to be meeting at a downtown hotel. We've, they've, we've rented the, uh, uh, the ballroom for the day. And mm -hmm. why don't you come to this meeting and just, and, and, and see if we can get some kind of thing going and, and you might be very satisfied with the product and all this kind of thing. Sure. So they go, they get in their car and they drive down there and they get to the parking lot and immediately they're hit by friendly people who are out there to greet them and shake mm -hmm. their hand and make them feel welcome. And they go inside the ballroom and the music is pumping and there's this excitement, there's a level that's out there right. and uh, everybody's all great. And then, then they get all these uh, talented talkers to come up, you know, and tell about this happened to me and this happened to me. And I started off with... Oh, I had, I was $5 in debt and now I'm driving around in a pink Cadillac, that kind of thing, you know, and this can happen to you. And then yeah. they get the featured speaker to come up there and tells the story and get you all pumped up and everything else. And so you, you buy the product and you leave convinced that this is your future and you go back home and for a while, everything is fine. You maybe sell some product to friends or neighbors or something like that, but eventually it starts to fail and you say, well, what's wrong? Uh, what am I doing wrong? Why is everybody else a success and I'm not? And yeah. so you're invited to go back and there's a next level meeting for people who are not beginners, but the next level uh, and you get into that next level and you buy the product and you, and it just goes and goes. And pretty soon you have so much time and money invested in this thing that you really feel like you can't get out of it. And mm. you feel that if I'm not a success like everybody else seems to be, well, it's my fault. Well, yeah. that makes perfect sense. It's cult-like behaviors. It's cult-like methodologies. But then I started comparing those kind of methodologies to what I was doing in a church. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't want to be a cult leader, and I didn't think sure. I my church was a cult, but I would encourage people to, when, when a visitor comes in the parking lot, greet them, make them feel welcome, bring them in, introduce them around. Mm -hmm. And when people would come into the sanctuary, the band would be up there playing or the organ would be playing if it was a more conservative or more, you know, traditional type church. Sure. And it was designed to pump you up, especially with these praise bands. I mean, the, the, the bass and the guitar and the keyboards and the music, and it was designed to be positive and uplifting. Mm -hmm. And people would sometimes tell their testimonies about, you know, uh, God did this for me, God did that for me and everything else. And, and then the talented talker, <laughs> me, would show <laughs> up and give the sermon. And my idea was to inspire people and send them forth with changed life. And I realized every single one of these techniques that I was using, I think totally innocent. I mean, I just sure, wanted sure. to give people a great experience and maybe make their life a little better by introducing them to spiritual growth or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I began to think, how could I have done it any different? <laughs> but I still couldn't help but feel guilty for um, using these kinds of techniques, which I came to understand only after I retired, are really the same methods that are used in a cult. And um, 
I suppose it would have been very easy for needy people to come into my church. And uh, I suppose it would have been very easy for me to um, become more of a a power type leader. I know it's very, very common nowadays, people who are on television and on the radio and all this kind of stuff. Uh, And I, I never did that because I never considered myself operating within that cultic methodology. But after I retired and wrote this book, I began to say, good Lord, I was (laughs) using cultic method methodologies all my life without even realizing it. That's how insidious I think cults can be. They, they bring you in step by step and bring you in until pretty soon you realize you're, you're caught and you've got so much invested and so much of your, your, uh, your friendships and your, uh, you know, relationships and stuff are right there in the church. And when you leave, you're not just leaving a particular church, you're leaving your friends, you're leaving your whole social network. And uh, it can be very, very difficult. And I think that's probably why so many cults that I wrote about began in religious movements. Now that we're on the topic, how would you differentiate a cult from a, I guess, just a religious group or a group with, you know, similar ideals. I mean, I know if the leader tells you that you're not allowed to be intimate with your wife anymore, that should be a red flag. Yeah. You know, there's some red flags. So, but how do you define a cult? It's a tough thing. For one thing, cults don't always have bad intentions. Right. Um, Matter of fact, they often start with the best of intentions. Uh, for instance, you know, we seem to, in here in America, we seem to, United States at least, we have cults built into our DNA when you stop to think about it. I mean, when we were kids going to school, we were taught about the first Americans and we were talking about mm-hmm. the first uh, Thanksgiving, for instance, and we were talking about the pilgrims and we were told about the Puritans. And we have to think, these people, when they left their home homeland, they were considered cults. Mm-hmm. And they came over here, and their intention was to build a great shining city on a hill. But look what happened when the, uh, uh, the Puritans, for instance, came into uh, Massachusetts and started to build cities, and like Boston and, and places like that. Mm-hmm. As soon as those groups got in in there, they started acting like a cult. They started saying, it's our way or the highway. If you want to serve, you've got to be a member of the church. They began to look suspiciously at uh, uh, women who lived by themselves and walked into the woods to gather herbs. They began to call them witches, you know, that kind of thing. And they began to punish anybody who had a different religious outlook, whether they were Quakers or Shakers or anyone like that. And uh, there was real cult-like behavior going on in in those early days. During the Salem witch trials, for instance, which was a classic example, I think, of cultic behavior, Cotton Mather, who was one of the great uh, New England preachers, uh, went to the Salem witch trials, and he just watched. He didn't Mm -hmm. get in there and try to go against it or anything like that. So... 
you know, here's a, if now, you know, cults are accepted. The early um, movement of people who followed a Jewish carpenter named uh, Jesus, mm-hmm. they were called a Jesus cult. And historians sure. even today say it was a Jesus cult that was embedded in the Roman Empire. So uh, it's very hard to define when an organization steps over the line and becomes a cult. Um, historians like to say that, you know, a, a cult plus time equals religion. Um, <laughs> I mean, how many religions today began really as as cults? You can look at the the Jesus the uh, Jesus movements. Uh, you can look at the Church of Latter Day Saints. You know, mm-hmm. uh, they were all considered cults at the beginning. The Quakers and the Shakers and uh, the Methodists, for that matter, <laughs> were what's mm-hmm. considered a cult. So it's it's hard to say this is a cult and that isn't a cult, but it's easier when you begin to look at the methods they use. The other, um, I think, sure way of looking at a cult is cults almost always, I, I would almost say always, begin with a founder who is at least narcissistic and usually mm-hmm. psychopathic. And it doesn't have to be a religious group. It can be, uh, you can find it in business. You can, politics is full of them. I don't know, the, yeah. uh, people they're who all follow, cult leaders in politics. Yeah, people who <laughs> who follow them like they're cults. A, the, a cult leader always um, has a sense of entitlement, um, mm-hmm. a common sign of people who are narcissistic is the belief that somehow they're superior to others. Mm-hmm. and that they deserve special treatment, and they believe that others should be obedient to their wishes and that the rules don't apply to them. Mm-hmm. If you see someone like that um, leading, whether it's a, uh, a business organization, whether it's a political uh, party whether or, or political movement or a religious movement or whatever, it's almost always uh, that sense of entitlement has that person at the head. The other, the other sure. thing that cult leaders always have is manipulative be- behavior. Um, yeah. They manipulate or try to control you. Uh, a narcissist will first try to please you and impress you, but eventually their own needs will always come first. Right. And when relating to other people, narcissists will try to keep people at a certain distance in order to maintain control. They want the mystique. They want the mystery around them. And they usually wind up exploiting others to gain something for themselves. And you see this in a a Jim Jones or a Father Divine in the early days or a, a Jim Baker, for that matter, <laughs> in the, the club. The, the third thing that, that cult leaders have, though, that we, you really have to watch out for is a need for admiration. Mm-hmm. They need to have constant praise. Uh, people with that kind of narcissistic behavior tend to feel that validation from others is what gives them their purpose. And they often brag or exaggerate their accomplishments uh, right. just, just to be recognized. And they want to feel appreciated. But eventually this leads to a lack of empathy. And that means that uh, the narcissist is simply unwilling or unable to empathize empathize with the needs or wants or feeling Mm -hmm. of others. And it makes it difficult for them to take responsibility for their own behavior. Uh, We see it in 
politics all the time. Once a a narcissist gets elected to an office, um, they're you know they they may have gone into it for the right reason. They may have gone into it because they want to do what's good for the country, but mm-hmm. eventually, uh, usually as soon as they get elected, they begin. <laughs> I want to hold on to the power. I I yep. need power, and all of a sudden, their own particular power and sense of validation from their own base group tends to make them feel uh, that that becomes the important thing, not mm-hmm. doing what's right. The, the, of course, when you put it all together, a cult leader always has uh, arrogance. Uh, sure. They see themselves as superior to others mm-hmm. and they sometimes become rude or abusive. Boy, are we seeing that in government on both <laughs> sides of the political spectrum it's today? It's awful. Yeah, when they don't receive the, the treatment they think they deserve and they, they're superior somehow and they may speak or act rudely toward mm-hmm. those they deem are inferior. A lot of times um, they will not a- a- attack a person's position. They'll attack their character, you know, that yeah. kind of thing, or attack That's their classic narcissist. Yeah. So when you, when you see that you're dealing with a cult and uh, it, it, it may be, like I say, it may be a religious cult that does that. Most of them are, but a lot of them are. It may be political, but you may have that in, in the office where you work. You may have a boss sure. who uh, is acting like a cult leader, you know, and he wants to be totally or she wants to be totally in control and all this kind of stuff. When you see that, uh, boy, life is too short to deal with that. I I always recommend that when you see that behavior, you get out because it uh, it's dangerous. Now, I have interviewed a uh, psychologist, and I asked her about psychopathy and narcissistic traits and things mm-hmm. like that. And and yeah, I said, have yeah. you ever, uh, now, obviously, if you're a narcissist, you're probably not going to think that you need help from a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Yeah. Yeah, but she told me that a narcissist will never ask if they're a narcissist. Does that make sense? Like they don't, they don't know or they don't care and it's just beyond their grasp. And and that kind of can landslide into having a sociopath or a psychopath in charge of these people. But I don't know how much blame you can put on someone. And I'm certainly not defending Marshall Applewhite or Jim Jones or any of these people in any way, but at some point they might be a victim of their own character and personality flaws too. More from Reverend Jim Willis after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Yeah, it's it's, uh, an expanding kind of uh, dynamic. Uh, narcissists may recognize narcissism in somebody else and not sure. even see it. At their <laughs> self. They they really believe that they are at the center, uh, not only of their own story, but of everyone else's story. It's mm. all about them. They usually lack any real empathy and they just display what turns into an unmistakable arrogance. And normally they're in search of validation. 
Mm-hmm. It's just that there, it's, it's, I mean, and all of us have a tendency to look for validation from other people. It's a mistake, but it's a very human mistake. We sure. all do it. Uh, anybody who's got a Facebook page or something like that, um, you know, they'll, they'll get up in the morning and turn on and they, oh, how many hits did I just get, you know, on, sure. on, on the, my post that I put up last night, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they're looking for that validation from, from other people. But at least narcissists might feel at least a small sense of, of, of shame when they okay. do wrong. And usually what hurts their self-esteem is not what they've done that's wrong. It's getting caught in right. doing what's wrong. Right. But they can easily add, uh, grow into sociopaths or psychopaths mm-hmm. because uh, a psychopath doesn't feel any shame. That's right. why uh, it comes as a surprise to people that most psychopaths can pass lie detector tests because sure. they honestly feel they, they can do no wrong because they're the ones performing the deeds. And if they do something, it's obviously justified because they're the ones that are, are doing it. And, and this doesn't have to be at, at high levels. It, it can happen even in your own circle of friends. If you've ever associated with someone who manipulates you by saying, I'm only saying this for your own good. Uh, right yeah. I mean, yes. gaslighting or or you always act this way mm-hmm. <laughs> or if your integrity is questioned if you have that passive aggressive domination from friendships from friends who want to tell you how to live your life and, they, and what they're implying is i'm better at living my life than you are at <laughs> yours and you can learn from me you know that kind of thing true uh, cult leaders do this instinctively they're master manipulators and they use their ability to their advantage and Mm -hmm. they usually develop a hierarchy uh the cult leader uh, a person will start out at the bottom Mm -hmm. and then by um you saying the right things and doing the right things and you know towing the party line pretty much Mm -hmm. they they demonstrate both talent and allegiance to the leader and generally the leader then begins to trust them more you know, and they become higher and higher in the group. And mm. pretty soon this hierarchy is a top-down hierarchy where you tend, the, the people at the top tend to surround themselves with other people who think just like they do because they don't want anybody telling them to do something different. Sure. But that also leads to something that that I think is especially terrible. And if you want to know if you're dealing with a cult, cults tend to separate followers from the world that exists outside the group. Mm -hmm. They generally tend to say, uh, if your family is bringing you down, or if your family doesn't agree with what you're doing by coming here, or if your family doesn't accept this kind of uh, teaching that we're giving you, maybe it's the fault of your family. Maybe you get get out of that family, get out of that group of friends, you know, come here, join our group, surround yourself with people who all think the, the, uh, uh, you know, think the same way we do, you know, they're, they're in the know, they're the ones that really know. Those are the ones that you've got to surround yourself with. And when that begins to happen, oh boy, you've got, you've got a cult in the making, uh, flee <laughs> quickly. <laughs> Get out while you can. Yeah, that's for sure. And, and it seems like everywhere in society, the problems tend to be at the top. You know, like most of the people that are joining, you know, cult A are probably good people. They want to do the right thing. 
They want to help others. It's the yeah. problem with the person that's in charge. And we see that in government. We see it in yeah. business. We yeah. see it everywhere oh, yeah. that most of the followers are probably pretty good people or, or victims, you know, yeah. and yeah. it's the one at the top that's kind of ruining it for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty good definition of a cult right there. Um, I've had, I've had people listen to podcasts that I've done since uh, American cults came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I've had threats on my life. You know, I've oh, had from one guy cult members. Yeah. Well, one guy wrote a, a message to my contact page. I guess I must've said something about a group that he was in, or I don't know if I even named it, but maybe I was describing it pretty closely. Sure. And he said, don't be surprised if a pineapple lands on your front yard. And I don't think he was talking about fruit, you know? Mm. Um, and I, I, don't he I'm sure he doesn't even know where I live but sure. the trouble with the uh, um, the technology that we have at our disposal today is that it makes cults even more uh, e- even easier mm-hmm. because it used to be that you could have a, a group in Boston and a group in Los Angeles and a group in Dallas and a group in Detroit that you know all believe the same thing but they didn't know the other ones existed. Well, now they can get on the internet, the dark net especially, and they can pass all their ideas back and forth and they can uh, uh, join together. So instead of having these groups that were separated and, and uh, you know, divide and conquer, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. now these groups can organize really well. And it's, it, it's terrible because it's not the fault of the technology. I mean, after all... Right. The, the technology that I'm talking about gives you and I the opportunity to talk about these things and how many other people get a chance to listen in and, and mm-hmm. express their ideas or think about their ideas. So it's a, in that case, it's a good thing. But unfortunately, ah, technology always comes with, a, with two sides of the coin. And uh, it's, it's, it's really tough. Well, mankind will weaponize everything. Everything. It doesn't matter if it's a yeah. stick or a rock or it's a nuclear warhead, we will find yeah. a way to use it to hurt people. And what's yeah. scary is like in your case, if this cult you know, member is saying this now, if it's a rational person, they're thinking, well, gosh, if I do that, then I'm going to go to jail for the rest of my life, you know, answer for taking yeah. a life or trying to injure someone. But if someone believes it's a mission from God. Oh boy. That makes yeah. it scary. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh it's 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 amazing how many cult leaders that I talk about in this book that uh really did believe that they heard the voice of God, you know. Uh I forgot I forgot who said it was, but they, they said uh, you're religious if you talk to God, but if God talks to you you're crazy, you know that <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. And a lot of these people really feel that they're on a, a mission from God. I've heard uh, preachers stand up uh, in in congregations and actually say that, uh, you know, God is on our side and through us, God is going to bring about change. And God wants us to have a Bible in one hand and a loaded gun in the other. Boy, that's scary. Does, does this sound, you know, like... Um, I have a, a, a couple of friends, uh, one of whom is the president of his uh, synagogue down in Texas. Mm-hmm. And uh, he talks to me about uh, there are people who are afraid to come to the synagogue because uh, just to walk in the door, 
they're identifying themselves with uh, as as being as being Jews, and anti-Semitism is so so big and so virulent nowadays, and people calling for the extinction of Jews and all this kind of thing. I mean, uh, that's exactly what that great cult leader Adolf Hitler did in Germany, um, and and a lot of people. Uh, in in Germany, it's it's history. It's a matter of fact that uh, they just really just kind of went along because they were afraid not to. And uh, look what happened with the death of all you know six billion Jews. It, it, that kind of thing is is just cult leader. You know, uh, a a group begins and they find a leader, and the leader feeds off the group and the group feeds off the leader and it can keep going and going and going. And if it, if the group establishes enough power, wow, the evil that they can do. It's, uh, it's and, scary. And, and, and it, it is we scary. see people, it, you know, falling for this all the time. Yeah. Yeah. If you blame something on someone else, it takes your responsibility away. And sometimes it can, you know, give you the, I guess you're in your own mind, the authority to do things that a single person wouldn't do. One of my favorite quotes is from men in black where Will Smith says, well, why can't we tell them, you know, people are smart. And Tommy Lee Jones says, no, no, a person is smart. When a bunch of people, they'll believe anything. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It, it it really does do that, and and it uh, it it grows, and it becomes a real a real evil. You, we 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 live in a in an age in a, in in human history right now, where all of us are controlled by systems. Sometimes we don't even understand there's a system working, but it's a system, and the the uh, the system over us is really designed to say, if if you're going to make it, if you're going to be happy, if you're going to have a successful life, you've got to stick within the system almost always. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you go outside the system, you're going to be in, you're going to be in trouble. So the system really is designed to teach us to be good citizens, uh, mm-hmm. good religious people, good, you know, this is what you're supposed to do and all this kind of stuff. And yet the system is really designed to cause us to fail when it comes to reading our, meeting our potential as what we could possibly be. And then Mm -hmm. when we do fail, it blames it for it. So the system causes us to fail and then blames us for failing. Um, It's, you know, we, we really reward people who color within the lines. Right, and there are, once in a while people get out and they do something new and something exciting, and yet as soon as that happens, uh, you can be willing to bet that there's going to be a lot of people who see somebody having success, and they're going to be jealous of that success, and a lot of those people are going to be sitting down in their basement in the dark with their computer, and it's very easy to be a bully or to be, you know, a thing sure. down there. If, if, if we hear somebody saying something that's, that's good, something that's positive, uh, you know, we might be able to say, you know, to our wife or husband, uh, boy, Millie, I really like that. You know, that guy's saying something that makes sense to me. But we leave it at that. 
If hmm. on the other hand, we hear somebody who says something that we don't agree with, oh man, it's going to the computer and find your group and blast him, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it's a, it's a pretty tough, pretty tough way to live, but that is the life that surrounds us. That's why I, I really do believe that if we're going to bust out of this, our, our hope, and I think we're at a crossroads right now, mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're playing with, with toys that are much more, uh, have much more power than we know how to control. Sure. And I think the human race is standing right here at a, at a, at a crossroads. How are we going to go forward? And I think the way forward is not through more material inventions or this and that and all the rest of this stuff. I think it has to be a, a deep-seated emotional, moral, I might even say spiritual. I hate to use that word because when I say spiritual, I'm not talking about religion mm -hmm. necessarily. I'm just talking about a, a, a spiritual conviction that we are more than just um, evolved animals. There's something in us that is is connected to an other which is greater than ourselves that sure. i think is what's going to pull us through without that i think we're in trouble well let's try and uh change that you know one person yeah. at a time that's all you can do that's yeah matter of fact i used to think i could change the world when i was young and then i began to think well maybe i could just change the people in my own my own church or my own friends and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. and then i began to think well Maybe I can just change my family. Now I'm beginning to think maybe I can hopefully just maybe change myself. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a great way to do it. And you are changing the world because people do read your books and they do take something from it. And you may not change the world for everybody, but you can change the world for one person and then they can go out and do it. That's why the work that you do is so important because that's exactly what you're doing. Well, thank you. Um, I like you're to doing think important so. work by getting people to think and getting people to sometimes even, you know, even disagree or open their minds to something that's new, uh, changing. That's, that's, that's important work. It really is. Well, we try and stay completely open. You know, I never censor a guest's thoughts. Sometimes some listeners may disagree. Sometimes I may disagree, but I believe people have a right to you know, say what they feel as long as it's not hurting someone else or, you know, prompting others to, yeah. you know, yeah. do something negative. If, if it's negative, if it's divisive, walk away yeah. because yeah. that's the only way that we're going to change anything because we're just completely separated right now. And, you know, I could say, uh, you know, I believe in the Second Amendment. Well, all of a sudden now I'm a Trump cult gun nut. Or I could say, <laughs> you know, I believe this. And then all of a sudden I'm that other thing. And it's like, no, I'm not. I, I'm, I believe this and I believe this. And it's two totally different groups that, you know, have this belief or, or whatever. And I'm just speaking in general terms, but then all of a sudden, no, I'm this, or I'm yeah. that everybody has yeah. to have a label and it's yeah. like, yeah. just skip the labels. But yeah. now we, when we talk about cult followers, I think there's a big misconception that these people that fall victim to this and later sometimes victimize other people, you know, through the cult or, or group or whatever, that they're all like social outcast 
weird people that, you know, you don't like you could spot one like, oh, that person looks like someone who would be part of a cult or this person acts like that. But that's really not the case when we're trying to profile, a, you know, a cult follower, is it? More from Reverend Jim Willis after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. No, usually uh, people are attracted to cults because the cult really, especially at the beginning, offers them something that they feel they need. Um, a lot of people might feel alone and cut off from people, and a cult offers them a family. Uh, they might feel as though the world is too complicated, and thinking for themselves is just, you know, how do you think with all these different things going on in the world? How do you keep on top of it? And how do you decide what's right and wrong, considering you might not even be getting good information? You know, sure. uh, who knows how the, manip the, uh, the, the information we're getting may come through filters or manipulators, you know. Um, look at, you know, television news, for instance, you know, there are liberal stations and there are conservative stations and the liberal mm -hmm. stations never listen to the conservatives and the conservatives never listen to the liberals, right. that kind of thing. So the cult offers something uh, that's, that's real. I like to call it, you know, they, they put their wisdom on a bumper sticker. It's easy. It's easy to digest. Mm -hmm. You can just breathe easy and say, wow, you know, that's, a classic example of this, for instance, um, the Branch Davidians. Mm -hmm. um, Vernon Howell was, he changed his name to David right. Koresh, and that's how most people know them. That's that's um, another red flag, though. If somebody changes their name to yeah. something <laughs> religious, uh, and I don't but, know yeah, that Koresh yeah, is biblical religious, name Koresh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, he started out, in Seventh-day Adventism. Now, when Seventh-day Adventism started out, it started out, it was called a cult and labeled sure. a cult by other religions. But Seventh-day Ad Adventism, you know, grew and it is a, you know, a perfectly acceptable religion today. Sure. But when he started out, um, he began to uh, build this up and build this up and build this up until pretty soon it got to the point where uh, he was convinced that he was the coming of the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And he began to, you know, get into all that. And of course we all know what, what happened. You could say the same thing about Jim Jones. He was a Methodist preacher from Indiana. Uh, he step by step, he got into the assemblies of God and then into the movement called the latter rain movement. Uh, eventually he moved to Guyana, but how did they get their money? Well, they took a lot of older people who were so confused because they didn't know how to manage their money and they didn't have enough to live on. And they were, they were confused about why the prices were going on and what was going on. And he just said, well, listen, let's make it very easy. Give everything to us. <laughs> uh, turn over your house to us. We'll sell it. Take the money, turn over your car to us. All you have to do is get rid of all your possessions and, you know, turn over the profits to us and we'll take care of you for the rest of your life. Well, for an older person living alone on a fixed income, wow, that sounds pretty good. Mm -hmm. That that older person on that fixed income, they're not a bad person. They're just a confused person and a scared person, a worried right. person. 
And now along comes a group that says, we'll take care of all your needs. You don't have anything to worry about. Boy, that's pretty darn enticing, you know? And so they fall into it. And they're not bad people. Uh, of course, we all know what happened with Jim Jones, too. I mean, 913 people drank the, the Kool-Aid, which is really cyanide. cyanide. Yeah. 304 of them were children. They weren't bad people. They were just people who couldn't cope with modern life. And here was a guy who offered them what they wanted and they got into it. And when they got into it, they couldn't get out of it. And eventually they found themselves all the way down in Guyana. Yeah. And, and, uh, what, you know, it, it's about as isolated as you can get, right? Like, Hey, we're going to move to the jungle where there's nothing around. Trust yeah. me, everything will be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but with Jim Jones, like he offered, you know, good things in the beginning, like, yeah. you know, inclusiveness and things like that. And it, yeah. it just seems like it just devolves. It, it always starts off as this, you know, beautiful sometimes, or, or at least good thing. Yeah. And then yeah. when they it, get the power, it just all goes all, to their head. In, in Jim Jones case too, it, it would be funny if it wasn't so tragic as he was making his way up uh, and he was still you know, within denominations, he was still respected and he was, he was a good charismatic type preacher. Mm -hmm. uh, but he started to develop a, pro, a, a following and he discovered there were women in his congregation who were um, kind of throwing themselves at him. You know, sure. he, he met with father divine in uh, New York and uh, they had a, quite a meeting because father divine by this time was farther along and uh, Jim Jones said at the end of the meeting, he was getting up to leave and he said, Father, I have a, a problem. Some of the women in my congregation seem to uh, be almost inappropriate in their suggestions and things like that. And Father Divine looked at him and said, sometimes you have to bring those feelings to the surface where you can deal with them. And Jim Jones said it was a revelation. He had to bring all that, that sexual stuff up. Yeah. to the surface and his way of doing it of course was to start having affairs with all these women you know and he it gave him permission it was just one step along the way you know um, now do you think that that quote from father divine meant that i i almost feel like it could be interpreted a bunch of different oh, ways sure. sure it could be i think you know you you like most anything if somebody says something you interpret it the way you want to hear it and that gave jim jones an yeah. opportunity you know that which led to where it went david david koresh went so far as to say that uh, everybody because he felt that he was leading an end time cult uh and this the lord was going to come back pretty quick he he gave uh he told everybody in his group that they were not allowed to uh uh, have sexual relations. Of course, he had 20 wives. Right. Uh, he was the only one who was permitted to procreate. Everybody else, no, you couldn't couldn't do it. Uh, and all this kind of thing. So a lot of these cult leaders, these cults become a a sexual thing. You know, Nexium mm -hmm. is a classic example. Oh, that they that's become a, a crazy story. Yeah, it, 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 it becomes a, a real uh, a sexual thing. And how many times... Do we find sex just infesting 
uh, people who are up in the hierarchy. I mean, you only, you only have to look at the church, for heaven's sake, not just the Catholic Church, although they were probably the most famous for yeah. hiding over. <laughs> They've earned their reputation. Of, yeah, but I mean, other other churches as well. Jim Baker was brought down by Jessica Hahn. You know, uh, uh, well, I mean, he, he was brought down by himself, but it was right. with Jessica Hahn, and uh, a lot of these people. Uh, that becomes a, a very powerful thing. Becomes the mark of the of the cult, and it's a, it's a pretty scary, it, you know, it's it's a pretty scary power anyway. But uh, when politicians begin to think that, I mean, we're just learning now about everybody from Ike Eisenhower to Jack Kennedy and everybody in between. You know, yeah. we're we're learning that uh, a person can gather so much power they feel they're above it and they're you know they they don't have to pay attention to the rules of society those rules don't apply to them you know oh pretty terrible thing now when uh you talk about uh waco one of the things that I, i heard you talk about was how he told them that end times were coming and they didn't have where they could just hop on the internet and say oh well this isn't going on here it's not going on in St. Louis. It's not going on in Chicago. It's not going on in L.A. They had nothing to connect them with anyone. So I'll let you tell the story. Well, that's a that's a that's a real a real tough story. Uh, David Koresh was convinced through his study in the uh, Book of Revelation that he uh, was the Messiah who was tended who who was appointed to get this group who was going to survive the end times. And they were going to go through the great tribulation and they were going to go through the great Armageddon and all that kind of stuff. They were the chosen ones through whom God was going to repopulate the world after Armageddon. And so in order to get through that, they began to hoard uh, guns and mm-hmm. because they wanted to get ready to fight the coming apocalypse. There's sure. a lot of people in the United States are doing that same thing right now. They've oh, we're their their government's coming for us. If I have my gun, I'll be able to fight it out, you know, and that's exactly what they did. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, the uh government groups began to serve some warrants and they, you know, they they sent uh, a a group of people out to the, the out, out to uh, Waco, and they wanted to check the compound, and because they had uh, warrants saying that these people were hoarding guns and the guns were not registered. Mm-hmm. Well, four agents were killed, and that immediately brought the FBI into it, and they surrounded mm-hmm. the compound, and they began. It was fifty-one days, I think, something like that, back in nineteen ninety-three. The trouble was that the FBI began to use their normal tactics when it comes to doing this. And they began to use psychological techniques. They wanted to keep the people tired, for instance. And so they would blast loud music at them all night long. And they would set up these great spotlights, which would sweep back and forth across the sky. And they would be constantly flying over the compound with helicopters, which were, you know, noisy and all that kind of thing, but to check out what's going on. And so they were creating this condition within the compound that lasted for two months and uh, almost two months. And uh, what they didn't realize was that they were in effect creating the very same conditions 
that David Koresh said would happen at the end of days during Armageddon. Yep. It would be a time of noise and confusion and a, a time of, you know, of warfare and all this kind of stuff. If, if you read the book of Revelation, you can hear some of these, these stories that, were, that was written almost 2,000 years ago describing exactly the conditions that the FBI were producing at, at mm-hmm. Waco until eventually, you know, the world was going to end in fire. And eventually, nobody knows exactly how it started, but the fire began inside the complex. But this was 1993. We didn't have the internet. These people didn't didn't have any connection the fbi was surrounding them they you know we didn't have cell phones right they didn't understand and for all they knew this was going on all over the world right they didn't know that it was just in waco they had they didn't have any way of knowing that and so they really felt that by golly david koresh was correct he said the end of times would come with with lights lightning and flashing and noise and confusion and killing and all this kind of stuff and now and fire and now lo and behold here it is it it's here so they honestly believed that this was coming and only the ones that managed to get through or managed to make it were the ones that realized oh it was just us right here we were by ourselves they had no way of knowing yeah and that's one of the scariest things is is the isolation and being cut off they have no way of knowing that no, we're we're really trying to help you get away from yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it like was, a Stockholm syndrome deal. Really? Yeah, Stockholm is syndrome is a good is a good way when uh, you know for those who aren't familiar with the term, it 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 it's that syndrome wherein people who are held captive begin to see their captors as their salvation, you know, uh, in, instead of the cause of the problem. And that's what was going on in Waco. That's what made it so tragic. Uh, I wish the government could have done something different because Waco didn't have to go down the way it did. I, I just don't think it did. I've, I've studied it and studied it. And I've come to the conclusion that if the FBI had handled it differently, uh, it would have had a different outcome. But Yeah, I agree with you on that 100%, but I don't know if this isn't necessarily the outcome that some people wanted. And I'm not talking about Koresh. I'm talking about like, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, just maybe, some people in our government were like, no, we want them squashed. And, you know, like you said, if, if you present all these things as, as, the end of the world and then the government comes in and basically backs you up and says yes this is going to be the end of your world then it, it turns into a fight and it's right right it's well sad. when you when you when you got orders coming down from on, on high handle it handle it handle yeah. it you want to please your supervisors yeah so you go ahead and you do it you know and i think you're absolutely right i think uh, that led to some great careers. <laughs> I'm sure you know, it did. Yeah, people were really uh, w- rose up in the in the ranks because they were seen as the tough negotiators. So it wouldn't take any guff and all this kind of stuff. Tough on crime. Yeah, everybody wants to be tough on crime, tough on and it's crime. like, well, you yeah. could have saved a bunch of lives if you didn't care so much about being yeah. Yeah. tough on yeah. crime. Yeah, you know, it's 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 a funny thing because I, I I see that same kind of thing happening today 
Um, back in 1783, um, Edward Gibbons uh, wrote a book called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, a very dense book. I wouldn't advise people <laughs> to run out and read it unless they really want to get involved because it, it's it's a it's a real study. Mm-hmm. And he came up with five reasons that the Roman Empire fell apart. And remember, this was written in 1783. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first reason that the Roman Empire fell, according to Edward Gibbons, was that sports and entertainment received more and more money while the plight of the poor was neglected. There were mm-hmm. people who were very rich and wanted to be entertained and there were people who were very poor and couldn't even find where the next food was coming from. The second thing was that the money that the Roman Empire gathered, it went to the military rather than public good. Yeah. Uh, the third, <laughs> this is wild considering what's going on in football today, violence in both games and public life became more and more accepted and prevalent. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people went to the Colosseum and they wanted to see people fighting animals and then people fighting each other and violence and eventually death was part of it. I think of people who said, you know, who like to go to hockey games just to see the fights break out, that kind right. of thing. The other thing was the fourth reason that fell apart was that people's faith in government was undermined and, and justly so. The government at the end of the Roman Empire for the last hundred years was really corrupt, totally corrupt. Yeah. And the fifth reason was that religions grew fragmented and religion became a cause of dissension rather than unity. Boy, I listened to that written back in 1783. And I think, does that describe America in 2023 or, or what, you know? Absolutely. Um, and if you want to go back even farther, you can go back, what, 2,500 years, you can go back all the way to, to, to Plato. Uh, when he wrote, he was writing about Atlantis in the uh, Timaeus mm-hmm. and whether or not, I mean, I know some people look at uh, uh, Atlantis as being um, a real historical uh, civilization. Other people see it as a metaphor. However, anybody views it, it doesn't make any difference because of what 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 Plato said was most important at this point. I mean, I mean, obviously it makes a difference. We all have our beliefs, but mm-hmm. I'm just calling attention to what Plato said about the fall of Atlantis, whether it was historically true or mythologically true. He said, for many generations, the people of that civilization obeyed the laws and loved the divine to which they were akin. In other words, they realized they had a spiritual element, an eternal element within them. Mm-hmm. And for many years, for many generations, the Atlanteans recognized that qualities of character were far more important than their present prosperity. So he said they bore the burden of their wealth and possessions lightly and did not let their high standard of living intoxicate them or make them lose their self-control. But when the divine element in them became weakened and their human traits became predominant, they ceased to be able to carry their prosperity with moderation. Mm 
and they were destroyed in a day and a night. Yeah. Boy, isn't isn't that a uh, isn't that a warning for our generation? It is, but nobody is heeding that warning. They they don't look. Yeah. You know, if you say, "What do you know about Atlantis?" They're not going to say that. They're going to say, "Oh, no. it's it was high Brazil, or it was in the Mediterranean, or you know Bimini yeah. Road, or whatever." They don't they don't take the philosophical the message out and it's like yeah. well whether yeah. it's whether it was a real place and this really happened or it's a, a tale to you know teach us then it doesn't really matter yeah it's all it's all fascinating i mean uh, you know i i for one happen to to believe that the atlantis myth is based on a a, a, a real life uh, historical civilization uh, it might be probably, us probably destroyed by the last ice age but if someone wants to disagree with me that's fine i don't care the important thing is what was the message that plato was trying to give by bringing this up in the first place that's what it is uh and, well he and probably had the, his own cult too yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah and eventually uh you know as socrates had to uh you know, drink the hemlock, just like Jim Jones followers did, you know, it wasn't Kool-Aid, but because he didn't fit in, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah we, we live in an age where I think what's happening in civilization and society all around the world today is screaming at us to wake up. And somehow we just are not doing it yet in numbers sufficient to bring about a real change. And well, it's a lot easier to let other people think for you. Yeah. You you know, they have everybody working, you know, two jobs. Uh, both parents have to work. The kids have three hours of homework every night. And yeah. by the time you are ready to learn something, you just want to go to sleep or watch yeah. a Netflix movie and crash yeah. out. Our, our lives are so incredibly fast and noisy and mm -hmm. chaotic. It's it's extremely different. Um, when I left the ministry, I had a choice of, well, I could become a retired minister and, you know, fill in for preachers who are on vacation or something like that and probably lived a nice, you know, normal, quiet life. But sure, I, I didn't choose that. I, I wanted to get away from that kind of life. I didn't want neighbors. And that's why I came out here to the woods of South Carolina, where I live right now. There are days go by when I don't see anybody. Uh, thank goodness, my I, I built a house next next door through the woods, through a path through the woods for, that my daughter could come up and live in, and she helps me with stuff that I just can't do anymore now because I'm getting old. Uh, but if sometimes I'll see her, and you know, we'll we'll talk every day, obviously. Mm -hmm. But if it wasn't for that conversation, sometimes. I wouldn't see anybody for weeks at a time, you know? <laughs> well, that's not uh, and, necessarily a bad thing. Well, I I did it for a reason. Uh, all my life, I had been trying to teach people about God, about spirituality. But it was that kind of thing that was, I'm, a, I'm kind of a left-brain academic in some ways. and mm -hmm. I I wanted to experience the holy. I wanted to experience spirituality. And so I came out here... Uh, with the express purpose of living out in the woods for one year and uh, watch this, the uh, leaves change and 
watch the skies at night and everything else. And I was going to go on retreat. I was going to slow down. I was going to live in silence. I was going to get back to nature again. And I was just going to do this for one year. I felt it was very important. Mm-hmm. Well, that was what, 12, 13 years ago. Hmm. <laughs> and now I'm not leaving. You, you won't get me out of here now. <laughs> I don't blame you. That sounds like you're living the dream. Well, yeah, of course, what happens is, you know, when you do that for long periods of time, uh, meditation becomes very important and your life slows down and everything else. And then what happens uh, when you're an author anyway, you write books, people get in touch with you, you have conversations and you're right back into it again and realize I get in my car and I go to town for groceries and why is everybody driving so fast? Why is everybody so loud? You know, it, it it is difficult, but I think it's going to be the answer. Somehow we have to find a way to build that kind of life into this life that we've made for ourselves. Yeah, that sounds like a a key to happiness for a lot of people, but you know, I, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do it either. I, I wish I did. I was, I'd share it with everybody. <laughs> I was extremely lucky. Uh, I I didn't ever have much money, but I, as a result, I didn't ever have the desire to have much money. So, you know, I, I according to what uh, the economists say, I'm poorer than poor, you know, I'm in (laughs) very little money coming in and yet nothing. I'm happy. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it makes a difference. It really does. Sure. You have worries, you know, uh, what happens if something breaks or I can't fix it or what happens if a job comes up that I can't handle anymore at my age, you know, that kind of thing. You have worries about it, but I don't know, somehow when those kind of things happen, universe always finds a way to come in and solve your problem. So yeah, provides what you need. I mean, you know, going back to, you know, specifically Christianity, you get your daily bread. You know, you're never promised a a million dollars or, you know, a fantastic lifestyle. You get your daily bread, you get what you need, not what you want. More from Reverend Jim Willis after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Yeah, well, that's that's it. I uh, when I came out here, I, I like to say I came out here to experience God, uh, and yet when I came out here to take on this life. Uh, my prayer was answered, but not the way I expected. Uh, I I did experience the holy. I did experience the divine, but it came to me through probably the world's oldest religion, shamanism. It it didn't come through Christianity at all. Uh, Well, let's talk about that. That's interesting. Well, when I I came out here, uh, I had a Bible verse in mind. Mm-hmm. And the Bible verse uh, comes from Genesis, and it was this. It comes from the story of Jacob and Esau, who were, uh, you know, the two brothers who had a falling out, mm-hmm. let's, let's say. And uh, 
uh, Jacob was forced to flee for his life, and he actually fled north from uh, what is now Israel, probably up into Turkey. Uh, and uh, while he was up there, he married four different wives and had 12 kids, and who became the 12 tribes of Israel because his name was changed to Israel. But the reason Jacob's name was changed to Israel because Israel means he wrestles with God, and it comes from this story that uh, when Isaac came back, about to be, uh, uh, or, or he, when Jacob rather came back, he was about to meet his brother Esau and be reconciled, and they were on opposite sides of the river that night. Mm-hmm. And next morning they would cross over the river and they would meet, and he didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't know whether Esau was still carrying a grudge and was going to kill sure. him. So he was worried and nervous, and he was walking back and forth like we all do at night, you know, when we're wondering what's going to happen the next day. And the Bible says that this person showed up to wrestle with him. Uh, and, you know, what a crazy story. Yeah. A man shows up, so they wrestle, and they wrestled all night. And as the sun went up, Jacob was hit with the realization that he was wrestling with God. Uh, it was actually a personification of God. And so he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Hmm. And that was at the, at my life, that was the story that I wanted to see in my life. When I came out here, man, it was with a prayer to hmm. the God that I had uh, understood for that, that part of my life so far. I said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And uh, I wrestled with God. I, you know, lived in a meditation that didn't just last a few hours or a retreat that lasted for a weekend. I was out here for for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and I was meditating every day, all the time. It was kind of like living within a meditation of quiet and trying to slow my life down and come to me. And I was wrestling with God. And when it finally happened, when the breakthrough came through, and I got it through basically through dowsing but that's another whole story mm-hmm. uh i i did have that prayer answered i found god and and the god that i've been searching for for my whole life and i found it i found god in nature and within me and that kind of thing there's a sequel to this story though that makes me think something bigger than me was behind the whole thing because uh, I had been out here a couple of years and uh, I heard from a group in Cornwall in England that wanted me to come over because they had uh, been reading my book, uh, the religion book. And they wanted me to come over and do a uh, seminar mm-hmm. about the the roots, the shamanic roots of religion. Uh, if anybody's interested in that, I've got some on, on my website, uh, jimwillis.net there's a, a youtube page and if you go to the youtube page you'll find some parts of this uh, uh in in youtube videos that i've done but at any rate i went over and had a great time with them over in cornwall but i figured since i was in england before i came home there was one place i had to visit my ancestors way 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 back mm-hmm. uh were from a little town called fenny compton in it's up northwest of london mm-hmm. and uh my ancestors were, especially two of them at least, were uh, ordained ministers in the uh, Anglican Church. Huh. 
So I went up there, and the church where they used to preach still stands in Fenny Compton. It's a little stone church, and they were I'm we're talking about 1600s now. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, so I wanted to go back and see that church where my ancestors is. So I contacted a historian from the town, and she met me that day. Had a had a wonderful time at a pub the night before with eating fish and chips and putting down a few beers and that kind of thing. <laughs> oh, it was wonderful singing and all that. It just couldn't have been better. Sure. But that day, she let me, the historian let me into the church, and I walked up, and I walked up into the pulpit where my ancestors used to preach. And the original stained glass windows, many of them are still there, mm-hmm. that were there way back then. And I looked at this one stained glass window. You could best see it from the pulpit. And I looked at the stained glass window, and it portrayed something that I've never seen in a stained glass window. It was a picture of Jacob wrestling with God, saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now, I had no idea that that was there. I had no idea. Somehow, those ancestors of mine passed down some kind of a spiritual gene through, I don't know (laughs) how many uh, uh, generations that somehow came to fruition here. Because when I came out here into the woods, it was, I will not let you go until you bless me. That was the verse that was in the back of my mind. And it led me to a whole new idea of what spirituality really is. That's an amazing story. That's got to make you feel really um, just fulfilled to find it that. does it it does it, when, when i was up there and that but the hair was standing up on the back of my neck i couldn't believe it it was just really feeling that wow there is something that's watching over us that's bigger than we can possibly understand uh too big to be confined within a religion i think uh hard to have a name i like to use word spirituality but even that name has a lot of baggage so that's whatever it is it's uh the 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 ground of our being and i'm absolutely convinced it's there for every single one of us but in order to access it you have to live a lifestyle i think that's very very difficult nowadays considering the lifestyle that we have built for ourselves that chaotic noisy loud lifestyle that most people just are you caught up in it you know you just don't have time and uh uh it's it's really too bad and and time is the best gift you can give anyone and that's why i oh, really yeah. appreciate everyone that comes on the show and takes time out of their day to share their knowledge with our listeners and that seems like a good place to wrap it up then that's that's a great story i would love to have you back on to talk about oh, any other books Anytime, you know, no, I'd, I'd be glad to, Jay. All right. Well, can you tell the listeners one more time where they can find your stuff? Yes. www.jimwillis.net. And uh, it has, oh, I don't know, five or six different kinds of pages on it. I don't understand the technology behind it. My daughter, thank goodness, is also my colleague, and she handles all the technical stuff. And one of the things she has on there is a listing of all my books and uh, mm-hmm. interviews, both good and bad, and events that are coming up, and a lot of uh, archived uh, podcasts and speeches. And there's also a link to a Facebook page and link to a YouTube page where we have a lot of videos. We're putting out videos uh, 
uh, almost you know, every couple of weeks right now, mm-hmm. we're involved in doing a video on uh, the wisdom of the Buddha. Mm. Uh, now we're in about three episodes into it. She's working on the fourth one now. But there's also a contact page. And if anybody wants to get in touch with me, they can write an email through that contact page. And I love to hear people because, I mean, you know, Jay, you and I can talk to each other and hear each other, but we have no idea who's out there listening. And I love to hear from people who might have ideas or disagreements or agreements or whatever. So, but no uh, threats. Like to, Keep the like threats to encourage to people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can. You can if you don't like what I said, you know. Keep the threats down. <laughs> don't listen. But all right, and we'll have all the links in the show notes and everything, of course, too. So you can just uh, check out the show notes, and you'll you'll have the uh, instant access to to everything. Great. So, great. yeah. Thanks a lot, Jay. It's been great. Anytime. Love to talk to you. All right. Thanks. You have a great night. You too. Well, that about wraps it up. We hope you enjoyed the show, Crypt Keepers. Don't forget to check out all of our social medias, which will be in the show notes. You can like, subscribe, share, or write a positive review to help us out. Let us know what you think at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our store at crypticpodcaststore.com. And you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash PI. That would be a big help. We got to keep the lights on and the servers burning and the mics hot. And remember, cults are like diets. They sound great until you realize you have to give up your free will. Good evening, Crypt Keepers.